Today is October 31st, 2013, and I'd like to welcome you to this edition of Understanding the Law. I'm your host, Peter Lamont. I'm a business and personal law attorney and the principal of the law offices of Peter J. Lamont. The firm has offices in New Jersey, New York, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law is a weekly radio broadcast where we discuss a variety of legal topics that affect our listeners. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. As always, we welcome calls from our listeners. If you would like to discuss any of today's topics, or if you have a uh, session, I encourage you to give us a call at 347-855-8831. Today is Halloween, and we have the most appropriate topic uh, that I could possibly think of, a little murder, mystery, and dead bodies. And we're very fortunate today to have two special guests with us, Dr. Cyril Weck and uh, Donna Kaufman. So welcome, both of you. Thank you for being on. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you for having us. Now, Dr. Cyril Weck, uh, as many of you may know, is a physician, a lawyer, and more specifically, he's one of the country's preeminent medical examiners and forensic pathologists. So those of you who are fans of CSI, will really appreciate uh, today's show. Dr. Weck has performed approximately 18,000 autopsies, and he's consulted on more than 38,000. So that's a lot of dead bodies. Uh, he's been involved in many high-profile cases involving President John F. Kennedy, Robert uh, F. Kennedy, Reverend Martin Luther King, Elvis Presley, Chandra Levy, Scott Patterson, and many more. He has offices in Pittsburgh. And we also have with us Donna Kaufman. She's a nationally recognized true crime journalist and author. She's also an award-winning producer and comedian. She's been covered, uh, or she has covered hundreds of high-profile homicide and missing persons cases, including O.J. Simpson, Michael Jackson, Casey Anthony, and John Benet Ramsey. Now, Donna, before we get going, is it true that you are one of the co-creators of the Pee Wee Herman show? Uh, yes, it is, actually. Yes, thank you. So you you kind of got a long time ago. <laughs> you got a split personality thing going on. You got a little comedy and a little uh, murder mystery stuff. Well, it's true, and uh, I always consider that for my comedy writing, which is usually joke writing, it's all research. And what I have done as a true crime writer uh, and working with Cyril is all research as well. So. It, it's all the same research. It just goes down different pipes. Okay. All right. Well, today we're going to talk about um, the new book that uh, Cyril and you have uh, written together. The title is Final Exams, True Crime Cases. And it's a really fascinating uh, read. It contains four murder mysteries that are obviously true that uh, Cyril has been involved in and that you uh, have investigated um, what I like about the book, quite honestly, is that it gives you a, a real insight into not only what you both do, but into how you go about solving these cases and the specifics of these individual cases. My favorite part, I think, of all is the tie-in at the end where you know you point out what lessons can be learned from these four individual murder cases. So I think that that's something that really stands out in this book. Um, I'd like to explain 
to our listeners exactly, Cyril, what you do. What is a forensic pathologist, and how is it different from, from a coroner? Well, it's, uh, it, it's not significantly different. A forensic pathologist, uh, by definition, is a medical doctor who has spent uh, usually five or six years uh, after graduation studying pathology. You study your first anatomic and clinical pathology, which is the study of uh, tissue examinations and then all of the clinical aspects of um, laboratory work, hematology, microbiology, chemistry, serology, uh, etc. And then additional supplemental training at an approved accredited medical legal institution, uh, one of the medical examiner or coroner's offices in the country. The forensic pathologist is someone who would be working in the medical examiner or coroner's office doing the autopsies. The coroner is usually, with rare exception in this country, not a forensic pathologist, and very few uh, are MDs. That's not really a problem if the coroner understands what he or she needs to do. So um, I don't want to digress here, but I want to make that clear. Just because the medical examiner system says, well, it's going to be a forensic pathologist in charge, um, whereas a coroner's office may be headed up by a funeral director uh, or somebody else, that doesn't necessarily mean that the ME system is is better. We could talk about that more later if you wish. Uh, But uh, uh, the forensic pathologist, in any event, is the person, whether he or she is um, a medical examiner, a deputy medical examiner, or just a... uh, a forensic pathologist working in a coroner's office. Uh, that's the person that does the autopsy. We do autopsies in cases of violent, sudden, suspicious, unexpected, unexplained, medically unattended death to determine uh, the, the cause of death, the manner of death, sometimes the time and place of death, uh, correlation between uh, natural disease processes and injuries and vice versa. Um, everything and anything that is something other than a natural death where questions are raised um, that may be matters not only of a criminal nature, as far as uh, I'm concerned in my definition of how a good office should run, matters that relate to uh, serious um, legal issues perhaps in the area of product liability or medical malpractice. Um, So these are cases that are handled in ME or coroner's offices around the country. Okay. Now, um, I I think that uh, Donna has referred to you as the Sherlock Holmes of, uh, you know, the crime world, medical world. And and Donna probably is your Dr. Watson. Um, You really are a Sherlock Holmes of type. You, You really investigate the smallest details uh, when you autopsy a body, you're looking for things like like fibers and, and hair and um, what's in the stomach. Is that right? Well, uh, yes, yeah, sure. Now, every case uh, varies. Um, frankly, percentage of cases in which, uh, uh, you know, there's something of a highly complex, sophisticated nature uh, or one of those uh, aha moments uh, that we see uh, depicted on television or written about in works of fiction or in some real-life cases, you know, obviously uh, those are a small percentage of cases. Most are matters where things are pretty 
of the issue have to be detailed, meticulous, and thorough. Motor vehicular accidents, uh, drug abuse, death, uh, suicidal hanging, industrial accidents, home accidents, um, people who have not been under medical care, uh, to make sure that you're not missing anything. So you do a thorough autopsy. You don't take anything for granted. You approach uh, each case as if it could uh, be something uh, uh, significant and complex so that you don't uh, miss anything. You collect pieces of tissue that you study microscopically, just like a hospital pathologist does with someone's appendix or gallbladder or lung cancer. And then you also collect the body fluids, bile, B-I-L-E from the gallbladder, blood, uh, urine, sometimes uh, pieces of solid organs, uh, brain and liver most commonly, and submit them for toxicological analyses. And that's all put together in murder cases, possible murder cases, other criminal cases, rape, sexual assault, etc. Uh, you pull together reports from the homicide detectives. Um, uh, other people, sometimes it might be the health department that is looking into something. All of that comes back to you. You, as the forensic pathologist, put that all together with your gross and microscopic autopsy findings, and then you produce a final report, post-mortem protocol, autopsy report, and that becomes the official determination of cause and manner of death. Okay. Now, speaking of, of manners of death, you mentioned in your book that there are five possible manners of death. Can you explain them? Yes. In order of decreasing frequency of occurrence, um, natural accident, suicide, homicide, and undetermined or pending. When someone dies and the autopsy or no autopsy is done in a hospital and someone or someone dies at home under doctor's care and it is not a coroner or medical examiner's case, that death certificate will not have manner of death boxes on it because if it's anything other than a natural death, then that physician has no legal authority or right um, to be filling out the death certificate. So you won't find manner of death on a regular um, natural death, death certificate. And the ME coroner, they have those little boxes that are checked off. And so, um, you know, you make these determinations. You know, the, the interesting thing is that much more often um, the manner of death is the controversial uh, issue and the more complex one than determining the cause of death. For, for example, a gunshot wound to the head. Uh, you know, how, how skilled do you have to be uh, to determine that someone died from a gunshot wound to the head? But was it an accident, suicide, or homicide? You see, um, somebody gets into an altercation uh, and dies, and you do the autopsy, and the, you, you find that there's a myocardial infarction, a heart attack. Okay, fine, no argument about that. Ah, but uh, is it related to the altercation? And if so, uh, was the other person the assailant, which would make it a homicide? Um, was it self-defense? Um, or do you just call it a natural death because, hey, it could have happened anytime, anywhere, because the, bad, the guy had very bad coronary arteries. So I'll just give you a couple of examples to show you how complex you find a body in a swimming pool or a lake or a sea or whatever. Um, uh, did the person die there, uh, die somewhere else? And if they did uh, die there, uh, was it an accidental drowning? Uh, was it a homicidal drowning? Was it a suicidal drowning? Uh, or was the person killed somewhere else and then thrown in the water or so on? So, you know, these are the kinds of things uh, that 
that you deal with and that get into the question of manner of death, which people sometimes confuse with cause of death. And I'm glad you asked that question, and I hope that I've clarified it. Yeah, it's actually very interesting. You know, let's just expand upon that for a second. The example you gave of the heart attack, determining whether or not somebody had a heart attack as a result of a natural phenomenon or if something caused the heart attack other than, than a natural cause. I mean, that seems to be something to, to the layperson that would be exceedingly complex to try to figure out. H- how would you go about doing that? What are the things you would look for to yeah, make well, determination? Yeah, well, it's it's also, to a great extent, subjective. In other words, um, if you um, get uh, a hundred medical examiner or a forensic pathologist together in a room and lay out a scenario uh, with greater detail um, of this nature, I can, I don't know how the vote would be, but I can tell you it would not be unanimous by any means. And that is why, by the way, you know, there are lawsuits uh, every day somewhere in America. Uh, you know, 99.9% you and I never hear about and know nothing about. It's only when it is a, an extremely fascinating, highly atypical case or when it involves a celebrity or a person uh, who becomes a celebrity, you know, like John Benet Ramsey, Lacey Peterson. They weren't celebrities going in. They became famous people coming out, um, unlike uh, O.J. Simpson uh, or Michael Jackson or Phil Spector cases where they're celebrities to begin with. So... Uh, you, you, you see cases in which forensic pathologists are testifying on opposite sides, and, and that is something that needs to be stressed. Forensic pathology is not an absolute science. A pathologist, not because we're more brilliant uh, than our colleagues in medicine, but pathology, by definition, is the most tangible, concrete of medical specialties. We have the opportunity to hold a specimen on our hand, to look at it microscopically. We have the opportunity to do the autopsy. Um, and then if you go to the other end of the spectrum, so to speak, look at the psychiatrist, and, you know, and that's much more subjective, I think, and I'm not denigrating psychiatry. I like psychiatry and think it's important, but I'm just giving an example of, of the two ends of the medical spectrum insofar as the opportunity to study things of a tangible, definitive, uh, physical uh, nature. So in between, you've got uh, everything else, uh, internal medicine, surgery, radiology, uh, and so on and so forth. So back to your question, how would you determine? Well, you would undertake the same kinds of tests, uh, special chemical studies, uh, enzyme studies, microscopic examination of the coronary arteries of the heart, um, look at the medical history and so on, and still you're going to arrive at a point where, in my, in my hypothetical, um, one forensic pathologist is going to be consulted and he's going to say that yes the stress the physical stress the emotional stress um, even maybe some minor injuries not sufficient to kill but sufficient uh, to produce pain that these together um, led to uh, the heart attack at that time yes the man did have bad coronary arteries but he would not have died at that moment if it had not been for uh, that physical altercation And then you'll find another forensic pathologist who's going to say, hey, uh, that's not a a conclusion that can be substantiated um, with reasonable medical certainty. And that's the level of uh, proof, as as you uh, and I know as lawyers, uh, reasonable medical certainty, reasonable medical probability, not just a possibility. So another forensic pathologist will say, yes, um, uh, 
that's a possibility. I can't exclude it, but I can't arrive or or justify or agree with a an opinion um, expressed with a reasonable medical certainty that the heart attack occurred because of those events. This guy had bad coronary arteries. He was a walking catastrophe. I mean, you know, he could have died any moment in his sleep um, at an enjoyable moment watching a movie or uh, or sitting with his family. Uh, and and I so there, you know, there is an example. So I just want to point this out um, that um, no branch of medicine is an absolute science. What what do we have? Absolute sciences are physics, chemistry. Um, and mathematics, and I think some people uh, say astronomy, but no other field, including in the forensic scientific field, except for cellular DNA. Even mitochondrial or maternal DNA is not, according to the National Academy of Sciences, their report of February 2009, a, a tremendous, very highly significant document. There's only one absolute science. By absolute, it means incontrovertible, unassailable, and that's cellular DNA, where you can say, if you have the specimen and the test has been performed by a competent person, that that is that individual's semen, uh, sweat, uh, blood, uh, uh, whatever it is, to the exclusion of every other human being. Now, I've brought it to a point of every other human being that has ever traversed um, the planet Earth. Um, but everything else, including fingerprints, bite marks, um, footprints, uh, hair analysis, uh, contrary to what is depicted on television and in fiction books, and contrary, regrettably, what it plays out sometimes in criminal cases with prosecution experts that come in and say, this hair is the hair of the defendant, uh, Mr. Jones, um, uh, this uh, fingerprint, uh, this footprint. The point is that there are exceptions, even in uh, fingerprints, which you and I... Um, and I don't know about Donna, she's, she was a little girl, but as little boys, we played cops and robbers, and fingerprints uh, were a big thing, right? Well, we came to learn the Brandon Mayfield case, an infamous case out of Oregon involving an attorney that the FBI identified as the b bomber uh, of a train in outside Madrid. I think the year was 2002, 2003. Many people killed and many more injured. And the FBI said that those are the fingerprints of Brandon Mayfield, um, a uh, convert to the Muslim religion in Oregon, an attorney. And that was reviewed by second and third levels of experts at the FBI, and they said the same thing. Fortunately, the Spanish authorities said, no, it's not Mr. Branfield, Mr. Mayfield, and eventually they were shown to be correct. But I just give you that as an example of the God Almighty uh, fingerprints and the God Almighty omniscient, omnipotent FBI and... and <laughs> and other people who would have you believe that something is absolutely certain. There is nothing that is 100% certain except cellular DNA in the field of forensic science and medicine. Okay. But can I add something to that? Sure. Uh, even DNA uh, by a skilled attorney can be argued, and in a homicide case, only 30% of cases, homicides, have a valuable DNA that makes a difference in the case. More often, it's used to confuse the public and or juries about its value. And at, like the JonBenet Ramsey is such a case. Um, uh, it has, the, the DNA is meaningless in that case um, for 
long reasons I won't get into. But, um, you know, it's with Dr. West, he uses the human body as an instrument and it almost talks to him. He can tell from the stomach contents, from uh, from different things like bugs that are on insects that are on the body. It's, it's all a timetable. So it takes his interpretation, and he works equally for criminal and civil cases, for plaintiffs, for defense attorneys, for prosecutors, he picks and chooses the cases that are interesting. Sometimes he does second autopsies, um, exhumations, and uh, re-autopsies uh, when when a family member uh, doesn't trust the uh, information they've been given. So it's really an interesting field. The, the power of his testimony can get somebody off of death row or put them right there because they deserve it. It's very heady stuff. Right. Now, let me ask you a question, both of you. Um, do you think, Dr. Weck, that you being an attorney has benefited you as a um, you know, forensic pathologist? And, Don, I'd ask the same question to you, having observed Dr. Weck in action. Uh, yes, uh, yes. I, I believe um, very much so. Let me make it clear, uh, Peter. I don't believe that a forensic pathologist has to to be a lawyer, but there can be no question that if you know the law and you know how lawyers function, how the legal processes work, and so on, you can be a much more effective forensic pathologist. And accordingly, therefore, I recommend, and if I, I, I had been the coroner of Allegheny County, Pittsburgh, for 20 years, and I uh, encouraged uh, my forensic pathology fellows uh, to attend some law school classes and one uh, went on to even earn a, a law degree uh, and so on. So, um, and I always invited them, obviously, as my guest, uh, to every medical legal uh, program that I conducted uh, here in Pittsburgh, um, whether uh, privately or through one of the universities. So the answer is no question. The more you know about the law, the better you are in performing your duties as a uh, forensic pathologist in a medical examiner or coroner's office. And Donna, as a non-attorney, having observed Dr. Weck, and I'm sure you've seen uh, his counterparts who have argued against him in cases, can Mm -hmm. you see a distinction between his ability due to his legal knowledge versus uh, a forensic pathologist that might not be an attorney? Oh, absolutely. Uh, His his knowledge encompasses the whole spectrum. And also, he's very smart about talking to juries, breaking down the medicalese and the legalese to plain speak so that people who are on the jury or people like me can understand. When I first started uh, asking him questions, I didn't know the difference between an aneurysm and an embolism. And um, he just explains things so well that uh, it makes it very clear. It's a great tool to have somebody like him that I can call upon for the journalism stories I do as well. Get through to a jury. Regardless of what your testimony is, it's not going to have that impact. You need to be able to kind of step down 
from the, the high level of thought that you engage in, especially in the medical field. And when you, as an expert, testify on behalf of, of your client, you need to be able to connect to that jury. The jury is made up traditionally of, of lay people. They're not primarily attorneys or doctors who are on a jury. Most lawyers don't want to select those people, you know, doctors and lawyers. They want people that are, you know, blue-collar workers. And it's very critical that in order to get your point across as a doctor, that you can communicate on a level that makes a lay person understand. So that's an excellent point that you make. Well, the other thing, too, is people who watch CSI, and I never miss an episode, uh, <laughs> almost come away thinking, well, gee, we got all the DNA results uh, by the end of the hour, and that's the, the guy. Well, it's not always that cut and dry in real life. It, it takes time. It takes sometimes a couple of trials before you get something right in a criminal case. And um, people's expectations have to be watered down because it, in real life it doesn't all end in an hour. Trials, as you know, Peter, can go on for a very long time, especially here in California where we uh, <laughs> have three- or four-month trials as just normal. Right. Yeah, well, no, no doubt about it. You know, Television and the media can certainly um, make people think things that are not there. You know, I remember when I was thinking about law school, it was L.A. Law was the big show. You know, mm -hmm. you, you thought you were going to have uh, all kinds of celebrity like L.A. Law would show. But, you know, the reality is that it's, it's a job. It might be an entertaining and interesting job, but it's a job. But getting into something that you mentioned about the media, um, your book has four stories, and one of them is the case of Jeffrey Locker. And uh, that's a, it's a very interesting murder. Um, it's something that's kind of bizarre and unique. And one of the issues that really come out of that case is the comment that uh, both of you make at the end of the book concerning the importance of a, a judicial decision regarding what a jury can see and hear and, and the differencing in these sentencing parameters. And obviously, the media will have an impact on things like that. Do you want to get into a little bit about this case? Because it's really fascinating, Kenneth Miner and Jeffrey Locker. Yes, let me just set it up, and then Cyril can knock it out of the ballpark, uh, as he did in the courtroom. Uh, the chapter in this is called The Willing Victim, and our book, again, is Final Exams. True Crime Cases by uh, Cyril Wecht, W-E-C-H-T. Jeffrey Locker was a 52-year-old self-help guru from Long Island, and uh, his, he had a wife and three children. And one night he traveled to Harlem, and he found an unemployed, and Locker was white. He found a black guy who was a drug addict, and he, he said, hey, I need you to do me a favor. I'd like you to kill me. And uh, the case has kind of got this title of uh, Harlem Kevorkian because he asked this guy to help him die. And the guy says, why would I do that? Well, you know, there's a bridge right there. Why don't you go jump off it? He says, it has to look like a murder because my family's in line to get $18 million and I'm no good to them alive. And this guy ended up doing it. There was a trial and all sorts of stuff came out in this trial, and uh, Dr. Wett did a, um, 
a recreation of what happened in that case for 48 hours, a television show, and the jury was not permitted to see that uh, reconstruction. It may have changed everything. And uh, Mr. Minor uh, was convicted. He talked to the uh, court and said, you know, I know I did wrong, but there's a there's a lot of things. This was going to happen anyway, and I don't deserve to give the rest of my life in in jail. And this, he was sentenced to a very, very long term. Well, two weeks ago, the New York Appellate Court just overturned his conviction, partly because they weren't allowed to see the recreation that Dr. Weck did. Yeah, you know the, so, the whole. West, please explain what that uh, recreation was and the nature of the injuries. You know, before we we go to Doctor, I just want to say that it, it's very interesting. You know, a lot of people think about assisted suicide and that sort of thing, but the facts of this case are so unique because you have you know Kenneth Minor essentially just holding a knife in place while Jeffrey Locker thrusts himself into the knife. It's really fascinating and, and something completely bizarre. Uh, so, so, Dr. Weck, go ahead with, uh, with your analysis. Yeah, well, no, you're right, and thank you uh, for stating it in such a succinct fashion. Right. I, I think, uh, uh, technically, uh, under the law, as you and I uh, realize, and Donna, of course, too, um, that except for a couple of states which have recognized physician-assisted suicide, um, you cannot help someone commit suicide. It is against the law, and it would rise to the level uh, of, of manslaughter. I, I think, it, personally, if I were in charge, there are some cases um, I would try to uh, even um, not go along with that if I were the prosecutor. But, but, but I do want to start off by saying that, technically speaking, um, you're going to be charged with manslaughter for whatever reason, even though, and we want to make this clear, there is no question at all, none at all, about um, the validity of the scenario that Donna has outlined, uh, i.e., that uh, Minor, when looking for someone to uh, uh, help him kill himself, originally you can imagine how the homicide detectors uh, felt uh, and what they believed, um, which was nothing when they heard that story, but they came to realize it was true. Okay, so the prosecution, nevertheless, uh, they just went gangbusters, and there was a very biased judge, no question. And um, now, as Don has pointed out, a new trial has been ordered uh, because of that biased judge's erroneous charge to the jury. So uh, the um, television station uh, came here to Pittsburgh, and I showed them, and it was been, it's been depicted. That program has been shown, and Donna would know, I more to two times at least, maybe probably more, and I'm sure it'll be shown again. Um, people should watch it, and I demonstrated it's no great big deal. Um, I and I had my uh, autopsy assistant. I uh, played the role of minor, and he uh, the role of um, the, uh, the defendant. And I um, know um, um, I you know well anyway, vice versa. I'm sorry, but anyway, we showed how it could be done. No no great big uh, uh, feat, uh, certainly nothing requiring, requiring great uh, agility uh, or uh, wild-eyed uh, contortionism. Uh, but regrettably, 
as Donna said, it was not allowed to be shown in the courtroom. I think the jury would have appreciated how it could have been accomplished. So we'll see. Specifically, uh, the the uh, wounds went into, there were six wounds, two of them into his heart and four into his chest, and they went in very cleanly because he thrust himself against them. If he was struggling, if he was really being killed against his wishes, he would be squirming, and those wounds would have a different structure. And um, But, you know, just with what the jury had to work with, they were so torn about this case because they realized that a lot of stuff that we get into that, that is not in the uh, 48 Hours thing is uh, the family knew exactly what was going on here. And they, you know, were uh, very interesting, uh, their reactions about um, when Daddy ended up dead. Um, there were things that came out in court that showed that they had full knowledge of what was going on. They were never in the courtroom, whereas the defendant's wife was there every single day. Right. Well, so it, it was troubling. It's interesting, though, that the, the beginning of the case, the way the case started off with the investigation, is that there were these reports that Locker had gone into um, New York City looking for a prostitute, and that was completely erroneous. Right. Definitely the police uh, gave the New York Post and New York Daily News some bad leads. And, you know, I have to gloat about that because it's, well, not gloat. It's the need to, a story like that, you've got to hit the press and be there first, hopefully be their best and, and do it right. And both papers really were given bad information um, but, you know, they acquitted themselves, um, unlike the client, uh, and they, um, you know, it was a, just one of these cases that nobody in, in the, de- none of the detectives, none of the lawyers had ever seen anything this weird and this, this twisted, but there were there's some surprises uh, that you'll see in the book, too that um, really just send it into it, the stratosphere of weird. Yeah, and, and you know, it's, it's um, important to kind of point out that just because there's evidence, um, and this goes back to a point that Donna made earlier, that, you know, you think that a CSI show, you get your DNA evidence within the hour you're done, but just because there is evidence, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily admissible at the time of trial, and I think a lot of appeals stem from a judge's ruling as to admissibility of evidence. You know, the general rule is is that the probative value of the evidence, um, you know, need, cannot be outweighed by the prejudicial nature. So, in other words, if a judge deems that the evidence is going to be prejudicial in some way, he may, he or she may not allow that ev- that that evidence or that um, you know item or or broadcast in the case of, of Dr. Wax um, into evidence. And so just well, because it's there, it might not be admissible. Well, that, that's indeed very true. But remember that usually, in fact, you know, I'd say almost always in a murder case, plays out in terms of what the prosecution uh, may wish to present. You know what I mean? Um, um, pictures um, that are uh, so gory um, and so on. Uh, the, the, you, you're, you're quite right. But, for, but to exclude the defense 
from simply showing um, <laughs> with uh, you know just just the physical movement, not, nothing more. It wasn't, it wasn't going to require any models. It certainly wasn't uh, requiring uh, any uh, uh, blood to be spattered around the courtroom or anything. That was, I think, a, a biased decision. But as you know uh, so well, Peter, that um, trial judges have tremendous uh, latitude, tremendous leeway in deciding these kinds of things, and it's not often that an appellate court will overrule uh, uh, such a decision if, if uh, you know, it was not totally or significantly unreasonable for the judge to have made that decision during the trial. It's going to be interesting to see what happens to him, you know, now that the, uh, you know, the issues is, is before us again. So I'd like to follow that and, and, and perhaps have you both back on to discuss the, uh, the developments of that case. Sure. Um, yes. Yeah. You know, just to just to uh, add to what you just said a moment ago, uh, a lot of times people say a, a case is won or lost in jury selection. I say a case is won or lost on the pre-trial or the pre-game show, as I call it, which is all the um, questions of what is going to be admitted, how many photos from the autopsy or the crime scene will be admitted. How about this witness who knows of a prior bad act? Um, and those are the things that are just so delicious to uh, see. And as a reporter, I get to see all of that stuff and, um, and, and be able to talk about it, unlike people who are on the jury. Um, so it's right. exciting. Now, the book also has three additional stories. I'd like to um, talk about one more, I think we'll probably end up running out of time. Um, so we've got the story of, of Jessica Lunsford, which is something that people are very familiar with, but not to the point of how you break it down in the book. It's extremely interesting and fascinating. And then you've got a story about a dentist, John uh, Yelenic, and then a doctor, Andrew Bagby. And we're probably not going to be able to hit on the last two, but Suffice it to say that it's extremely fascinating reading. So anybody that is a fan of true crime, um, I, I would recommend that you pick the book up because you know, it's things that you just don't see. I mean, just like we were talking about in the Locker case, what a bizarre turn of events. How someone you know goes out and, and, and asks a, a drug addict to hold the knife so he can stab himself. It's crazy, but very fascinating. I want to talk about um, Jessica Lunsford's case for a minute because one of the things that um, you, you get to in the analysis of the case is the importance of uh, the way that the media, and, and obviously, Donna, this is something you're going to be able to, to contribute to significantly, the impact on the media can impair, or the media's impact can impair an investigation. And what does that do in a case of a missing child? You know, how does oh, that boy. all work? So you want to just give a little background on the Jessica Lunsford case? Yes, and then we can get Jessica into that question. Lunsford, nine-year-old girl in Homosassa, Florida, which is near Tampa. This was in February of 2005. And uh, her, she lived with her dad and her grandparents in a double-wide trailer. And she's a happy little girl and... Um, 
the morning that she is supposed to go to school, they hear her alarm clock going off, and you know, where's Jessica? The the dog wasn't uh, didn't hear anything, uh, um, and they they look all over, and they finally call the police and say she's missing. And as we, as everyone knows, you always begin a police investigation by looking inside the family, and then you move out to wider and wider circles. And they kind of just stopped with looking at dad and grandpa, and they were the suspects. Meanwhile, dad is saying, I'll do anything, you know, and he's talking to the media cameras that are camped on his uh, uh, front yard, and this becomes a case that is on HLN every day on Nancy Grace's show and all the other shows, and Mark Lensford, the father, goes on that show every day and says, I had nothing to do with it. Jessica, hang in there. If you can hear me, you know, we're coming for you, baby. And um, the the thing is, is that he wasn't responsible for his daughter's death. Uh, there was a guy, uh, a pedophile, who lived in a trailer nearby who walked into their house, unlocked door, took the little girl in the middle of the night, brought her back to his trailer, which was filled with his cracked-in buddies, and uh, kept her there for days and buried her alive, and then uh, split um, to Georgia. And so the question is, how come the cops didn't find her? Well, there were a lot of things that they did wrong, including having the search and the dogs really too close to both of those residences so they couldn't get a hit on where she might have been. It was three weeks before they found her. So I get into all of that, and then I brought Dr. Wecht into the case because there were so many errors on the part of the uh, the uh, police and sheriff's departments there that uh, there was a civil suit possibility. And um, so that was Dr. Wecht's uh, 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 part in this was to help uh, create the, he wrote a textbook on proper police procedure so that could have really been useful in uh, a trial so we get into that and basically the uh, father became the greatest hero uh, for missing children and then he set up these foundations and turned into you know a, an angel with a tilted halo and uh, and I so I covered that too how the media actually turned against this this guy who didn't ask for any of this and didn't handle it well. We see that all the time where cases get get you know tried in in, in the court of public opinion and as as a journalist yourself and and Cyril as um, you know an expert witness yourself, how do you view the media's coverage? of investigations, you know, even before they get to the point of, of trial, you know, do you believe that it is something that, that sways the public? Because, you know, you can sequester a jury, but you can't sequester people from hearing what's in the media, what's on the news before there's an arrest made or before the case is tried. What do you think about the impact of the media on jurors in general? You are you are absolutely right. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, the news media uh, in America um, 
you know, they're to some extent uh, they're they're out of control. Um, they have become extremely competitive to the point that they advertise, so to speak, like uh, a business uh, entity would be advertising its services. Um, I don't recall uh, decades ago uh, uh, that uh, the news uh, department advertised uh, itself and so on. And what that means is that they're in competition with each other. And when you compete, you've got to do something that is uh, better and more exciting uh, and more dramatic uh, than your uh, uh, competition. And so, you know, each one comes on stronger than the other. Uh, of course, you know, again, we can't digress into First Amendment rights. And I readily admit that the problem is, well, how do you control and how do you apply restrictions and so on? Um, uh, properly, it's impossible. But, but uh, that begs the, 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 the question, and my answer to your question is that there is no question in my mind that the news media, to a great extent, um, uh, direct channel influence um, the minds of jurors, prospective jurors, uh, in uh, many cases, especially those of a highly controversial nature involving, as I say, uh, people who are celebrities, issues of uh, uh, great moment or people who become uh, famous uh, for whatever reason or another. And, well, those reasons, too, are going to be related um, uh, to uh, uh, television coverage and newspaper and radio uh, to a lesser extent. So, uh, you know, I uh, and then you, you, you start off uh, as a defendant in a case at a tremendous disadvantage. So the, the legal maxim, innocent until proven guilty, uh, yes, but you and I know uh, uh, as attorneys and Donna uh, from her following of these cases um, that uh, that becomes uh, meaningless. It's markedly diluted and weakened um, by the fact that everything has been portrayed um, usually in a, in a very uh, one-sided partisan fashion uh, in, in, in cases. So I, I don't have an answer for this, except it, 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 I think it is uh, a, a serious flaw uh, in our legal system. And um, while I've not done any studies, I do not believe that you will find this kind of um, um, uh, coverage uh, of a biased nature, uh, certainly not to the extent in, uh, that it exists in this country in, in other nations, um, which we consider, you know, pretty close to ours insofar as uh, Western European democracies, et cetera, are concerned. I, I, it's, it's, it's a bad, bad uh, situation. And but I, on I the other hand, if it's a missing child case or missing uh, endangered person case, there's no better way... Oh, that's oh, I agree, Donna. Donna, and, Donna, that's another matter. I wasn't talking yeah. about getting the word out. No, no, I was talking about when someone then. Uh, no, no, I agree with you, Donna. Absolutely, and they they blew it. They blew it in this case badly. Absolutely, they blew it. No, I'm not talking about. No, there the news media serve a great purpose, a tremendous purpose, uh, in in generically, categorically bringing uh, cases uh, uh, to to the attention of people to prevent. Uh, child abuse and sexual abuse and and all of these kinds of things. I, I agree completely. I was talking about where, uh, you know, uh, Mr. X uh, then uh, is named and so on and uh, pictured, of course, uh, 
um, in the pose that all the law enforcement people like, handcuffed, uh, being uh, brought in. Um, they don't they don't want him uh, to be brought in by his attorney. They want him to be picked up at his home. Um, and that old perp have, walk is good television. Uh, you know, the, the perp walk, exactly, and the perp walk, I mean, and they, uh, you know, depict it uh, time and time again. And it makes no difference, uh, you know, what you and I or anybody else may think about that particular defendant, um, and, and that'll vary. I'm not uh, expressing uh, personal sympathy, uh, empathy for some of these people who most likely have committed a heinous crime. But what I'm saying is that it makes a mockery of the uh, innocence, uh, innocent until proven guilty concept. That's co- totally different from getting information out uh, when you're looking for a missing child, for a missing person, where you're trying to determine who is responsible uh, for something. News media could do better a job. Uh, for example, the Baby Hope case in New York uh, recently. I don't know. Uh, Peter, you would know better than I, but I, I, I think maybe if the news media had pursued that case, if, if Baby Hope had been a white child of an affluent family and so on, I got a feeling that there would have been a little bit more interest generated and probably would have led to uncovering uh, who committed that crime. It seems to me, as I read about it, I'm not involved, but as I read about it, it doesn't seem like it was some fantastic bit of homicide detective work that led to the ultimate identification of the person who was charged with having killed this baby. Right. Right. No, it's, it's true. Well, the, the other uh, danger is social media, which uh, the legit media has nothing to do with. It's people going on Facebook and looking up people's criminal backgrounds and articles about them when they're sitting on a jury. Yeah. And, and that's happening more and more these days, and it's a real hazard. Well, let me ask you a question. This is interesting. Social media in general... Um, you know, the rapid dissemination of information, it's instantaneous. What do you think about uh, the use of, of these, um, you know, dash cams and the helmet cams? For example, what happened in New York with the motorcycle, uh, you know, riders. Wow. I don't want to yeah. call it a gang, but, you know, here you have somebody who has one of these uh, cameras mounted to their helmet. You know, mm-hmm. in Russia, they've been doing it for years because of the high instance of deliberate motor vehicle accidents and the, the crazy driving. So everybody in Russia has a dash cam. But, you know, here now with technology advancing and the ability to upload via Wi-Fi these, uh, you know, images that you shoot from your, 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 your helmet, I mean, what do you think about the impact that that's going to have on cases like the motorcycle case? It's fascinating. And in England, where there are um, cameras everywhere, every square inch of London is covered in cameras. Uh, and and then that's that point of view. Is that the real point of view? Or is there another um, uh, camera that would have a different information? As we saw with the bikers, more and more material brought out more and more of that case. And it's still not over. We still haven't seen it all. We're not going to stop it. We just have to realize that that's the world we're in now. Yeah, well, people in today's world seem to be all amateur journalists, and that's what social yes. media provides for. I mean, you know, you have years of experience, firsthand knowledge and training, um, but you've got somebody with a cell phone and a Facebook account, 
And the next thing you know, you know, they are they are the media. And that's really something that's rapidly developed in this country. It has a massive impact on on civil and criminal cases. And I don't see how it can ever be curtailed or stopped. It's it's too rapid. Well, look at the impact of the uh, Zapruder film in the Kennedy case. And uh, Cyril, Dr. Wecht and I are writing about that now because he's one of the world's greatest experts on that case. And we'll get into that perhaps another time when you have more time. Uh, but um, that case was made, um, and it, it really affected how that case was investigated because all of a sudden there's a, a camera that's indisputable evidence. And uh, that never had been that Today, everyone in Dealey Plaza would have points of view and cameras on that, uh, you know, on, on that motorcade. Now I have to ask you, since you brought it up, have you read the Bill O'Reilly, um, you know, book concerning the assassination and some of the uh, the writings of of somebody like Jesse Ventura? Are you familiar with those? Uh, yeah, yes, yeah. Well, uh, no, 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 uh, go ahead, Donna, please. Um, I, you know, they're interesting. If you want the real deal, talk to Doctor West because he has lived this case, and and that's why it's so. It's it's going to be a very fascinating book uh, when it's finished. It should be out soon. But um, there's nobody that has the perspective, again, going back to the autopsy and and why it, it mattered in this case. Uh, so as opposed to people like Jesse, uh, who really just kind of wants to talk about things that are inflammatory and same with Bill O'Reilly, really. This is this takes it back to the science, and and that's what's a little more interesting to us. Well, that's now, going to be. Me, a... I haven't. Uh, I've I read reviews. Uh, I haven't had a chance uh, to read either of those books. And uh, you know, as we know, and and uh, we'll come to know more in the uh, next three weeks. There's a plethora of, of books, and there will be a huge number of television and radio programs and newspaper interviews, et cetera. I'm already lined up to do a, a couple of foreign interviews. Uh, they just called me from Madrid, Spain yesterday. I did one in, for Brazil and, uh, of course, uh, dozens uh, and dozens of programs throughout the United States. And people have a right to, to write a book. Just keep in mind uh, that um, uh, don't be um, sucked in uh, from either side. Um, including, uh, you know, the side that I strongly believe in, namely uh, the critic researchers of the Warren Commission report who believe that it's total fiction. Um, if, if they don't have any real credentials, uh, of course you can see whom they have quoted, whom they have interviewed, and what the forensic scientific facts are. I have tried, um, not because I'm disinterested, I'm fascinated, by the political investigative aspects of the JFK assassination, uh, going back with Oswald, et cetera, and we talk about that another time. But I have focused upon the forensic scientific aspects, and, and most egregiously um, the single bullet theory, which is the sine qua non of the Warren Commission Report's conclusions vis-a-vis a sole assassin. That one bullet uh, made seven wounds in President Kennedy and Governor Conley uh, into uh, uh, Conley's uh, into uh, Kennedy's back, out through his throat, 
in midair, uh, turning uh, back to the right 18, 20 inches to slam into Governor Conley's right posterior axillary area, which means it's directly behind the armpit, coursing through the lung, destroying five inches of the right fifth rib anteriorly, exiting from below the level of the nipple, coming up uh, about a foot or so, hooking around uh, to get him in the back of his wrist, uh, and then exiting from the front of the wrist after shattering the radius, one of the two long bones, uh, from the elbow to the wrist, and then going down at a different angle into his left thigh. That's the single bullet theory, a bullet that emerged essentially pristine with a total weight loss of 1.5%, uh, despite having left fragments of itself in four anatomic locations of these two men, a bullet that performed vertical and horizontal gyrations uh, that no... Um, a roller coaster ride in the world has ever come near um, simulating. So well, just, just then, then you get on and on and on and on. The missing brain, the burning of the notes uh, at Dr. Hume's uh, home, the pathologist in charge on Sunday night, the failure of the pathologist to even know that there was a bullet wound in the president's throat when they did the autopsy on Friday evening. I mean, this, I, I mention these things hurriedly because I want people who believe that small percentage, 15, 20% of Americans who continue to believe in the Warren Commission report, I want them to know what they have to accept. I want them to know that Humes and Boswell, the two naval pathologists who performed this autopsy, had never done a single gunshot wound autopsy in their entire careers. I want Americans to think about that. That's an insult, that's a disgrace, an abomination. The president dead of multiple gunshot wounds that have to be correlated with Governor Conley's wounds and all the determinations to be made, and you call upon two people who have never done a gunshot wound autopsy in their entire careers. That's the Warren Commission report's uh, basis. That's, uh, that, that's what they uh, depended upon to arrive at their incredible conclusions. Well, I would definitely like to have both of you back on the show to talk about that in the next coming weeks. Um, because I think that that can uh, can be an entire show. It's it's absolutely fascinating. I look forward it's to that It's so hard uh, to, to get him book. to come out of his shell, though. You know, that's the <laughs> thing. I'll have to work on him about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we're, we're winding down. I'd like to uh, let our listeners know where they can pick up a copy of the book that we've been talking about today, Final Exams, True Crime Cases from Cyril Weck. Uh, I know it's on Amazon. Uh, Donna, where else can people get it? Well, please go to Planet and Rule, A-N-N-R-U-L-E. And Rule is our publisher. This is an e-book, and uh, it has uh, our bios on there and uh, some uh, video of Dr. West, and it also shows how you can order it on Planet and Rule. And Rule is um, the the true crime empress who has 30 best selling books, 30, 33 or something like that. She, she turned, she's probably turned one out since we've been on the radio. And uh, they're all wonderful. So to be uh, in her, uh, in her, uh, under her umbrella is just a great uh, joy. And uh, she, her whole team is wonderful and very supportive of what we do. And um, if you don't have a reader, you can download at, uh, just Google, um, a Kindle, free Kindle, K-I-N-D-L-E. Download that, and then you can down, buy our book and download that. It goes right into your reader. And so we'll put all that here. information up on our page as well so that the readers can, do, uh, can download it. Uh, we've got uh, 20 seconds left. I'd like to thank you both very much for being on the show. We're going to have you on again. 
Uh, I want to thank our listeners for joining me. We'll be back next week with more legal and business news. If you have any questions or wish to discuss any issue with us, please give us a call at 973-949-3770. Thank you both again. Thank you. Thank you.